0: Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in five dollars per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcast network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I'm coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a cash app profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right. So today we're going to wrap up our study that we've conducted recently about the bill of rights and whether or not it applies to the state's. And we're going to do this by looking at the majority opinion from the slaughterhouse cases. Now that by no means is the exhaustive end all be all for 14th amendment originalism or original intent. You could also look at USB Crookshank, the majority opinion there. And just uh, there's a book by Ryle Berger called government by judiciary, where he really goes a lot further in depth. Obviously I can only go so far in podcast format, but I have been getting asked, why do I care so much about this? And if it's going in your favor, why does it matter to you? And why do you think it's a good thing for states to have gun control? So number one, I have never on any of my episodes or in any of my online posts said that I think gun control is a good idea because I actually think the exact opposite. It's a terrible idea. There is a difference between saying the state has the right to do it versus saying it's a good idea. My opponents seem incapable or unwilling to understand that point. But the main reason I care is because if we embrace incorporation, you're going to get the good and you're going to get the bad. You cannot have one or the other. You must take both of them. And it's an extremely sharp, double-edged sword. So as we're recording this episode, there are two things, current events, that I want to talk about before we get into the opinion. One is that the U.S. House of Representatives has introduced legislation to ban assault weapons. The language is very vague. They will have the, they being federal Congress, will have the authority to define what an assault weapon is, so they can pretty much ban whatever they want to under that. And when we stop and think that the federal Congress, the federal courts, and the federal executive are really just three branches that collude against the states, and that's where the vast erosion of rights have come from, then that should really give us pause, because even though the Supreme Court has ruled a certain way when it came to gun rights on some things, Can you really count on them when the tips are all down on the table? I personally don't think so, because they've shown that time and time again. But even if you do think that the Supreme Court will be a reliable backstop for gun cases in the current composition of the court, there's another bill that's being advanced by Democrats who want to expand the court. They want to expand it from 9 to 13 justices. And since Joe Biden is the current executive and he is a Democrat, ostensibly his appointees would be more liberal leaning or radical leaning justices. Now, both of these bills, in the interest of full transparency, have a very slim chance of making it through the House, let alone the Senate. But it does show, especially with expanding the court, the Supreme Court would have no power to stop that because that that is a power that is solely delegated to Congress. They can do that and there's no way to challenge that. So that's why we need to be careful with this because you're getting in bed with a very fickle ally at best and a very dangerous enemy at worst. So that's what we need to think about is the Supreme Court runs cover because in addition to these two bills, there was one recently, I talked about it on a previous episode, where as the New York Rifle and Pistol Association case was being handed down or the decision to the case was being handed down, at the same time you had the Federal Congress Undertaken bipartisan gun control measures for background checks and so on and so forth. So the Supreme Court really does just run cover for usurpations of the other two branches. Throughout the vast extent of its entire history, that has been what the court has done. It has delegated to itself the power to interpret the Constitution to invent new powers for the other branches, or it's just taken the powers upon itself, especially when we get to the 1950s, uh, maybe even stretching back to the 1920s. And before that, under the Marshall Court. So the court has been a very, very dangerous threat to liberty, and it has eroded liberty, and it has really been the main driver of federal usurpation of state and local powers. So keep that in mind as we go through today's episode. And again, this is going to be the wrap-up episode. After this, we're most likely going to go back to our study of the War for Southern Independence in the long view. But that is the main takeaway, the court is not your friend. It is a very fickle ally and a very dangerous enemy, all wrapped up in one, all wrapped up in one. But with that said, let's go ahead and get to the opinion from the Slaughterhouse cases, just to give you all some context about what these cases were about. Let's do that first and then we will read the opinion itself. Okay, so the year is 1867 and roughly 3,000 citizens have died in New Orleans from a cholera outbreak. And the outbreak was due to local butchers slaughtering animals and dumping entrails and all of the other guts and materials into drinking water or sources of drinking water. The state legislature responded by chartering a state monopoly for 25 years called the Crescent City Livestock Landon and Slaughterhouse Company, which would not actually monopolize the business of slaughtering the animals, but rather the location within the city limits where slaughtering could be performed. So, they would basically be granted a parcel of land, and it was only on that land where you could slaughter the animals. Now, the corporation that was chartered by the state was actually, by law, required to let independent butchers use their facilities. Now, the butchers would have to pay a fee to use them, but the corporation, by law, was required, on threat of very stiff monetary penalties, to let butchers practice their trade there. They could charge them a fee, but they had to accept them, so... What happened, though, is the Louisiana legislature had been bribed to grant this charter, right? So there were a group of butchers, a small association of butchers, actually six of them, who filed this suit, taking the case all the way up to the federal Supreme Court. They worked it through the Louisiana court system, and then they took it all the way up to the federal Supreme Court. And their argument was that the creation of the state charter monopoly robbed them of their right to earn a living and practice their trade, therefore violating the 13th Amendment by keeping them in what they perceived as involuntary servitude. Now, again, that's not the case. They still had every right to practice their living. They just had lost the right to dump wherever they wanted to, and they just had to pay a small fee. And legally speaking, the Crescent City Livestock Company was going to be required to let them ply their trade. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But this group of six butchers also challenged under the 14th Amendment, stating that their privileges and immunities had been violated, as well as their right to equal protection and due process. Louisiana countered by stating that the monopoly had been created in an attempt to better public health, which, coincidentally, the legislation and the new company did accomplish because after this, you didn't really have any more major cholera outbreaks in the city of New Orleans. Now, were there other ways they could have gone about this, maybe by just saying, look, you can't dump it in the water? Yeah, sure. Or could they have said, "Okay, you can do it within the city limits, but you have to do it below the source of drinking water? Yeah, whatever the case may be, there were different ways that they could do it. But ultimately, the monopoly did or the state charter corporation did accomplish its task. And no more major cholera outbreaks were found in the city of New Orleans after this. Now, keep in mind that the state court system had sided with the Slaughterhouse Company. And the case made it before the Supreme Court in 1872 So I'm going to pause here, and we're going to consider the political atmosphere at the time. So we're still smack dab in the middle of Southern Reconstruction. Radical Republicans are in almost total control of the federal government. They have control of Congress. They have control of the Senate. They somewhat have the executive because Grant was, at this point, kind of more in line or more in sympathy with the radicals or easily manipulated by them. So for all intents and purposes, they pretty much controlled the executive. But they did not have full control of the court. Now, they had quite a few people on the court or quite a few justices on the Supreme Court, but they did not control the court. So the makeup or the composition of the Supreme Court at this time was as followed. One, you have Samuel F. Miller. He was a member of the Republican Party and a Lincoln appointee. You have Nathan Clifford from New Hampshire and then Maine, member of the Democratic Party, and he was appointed by James Buchanan. And he was nominated very shortly after the Dred Scott decision, and his confirmation was hotly contested, with Clifford being called a doface by his opponents. And a doface would be a northern man with southern principles or sympathies. Now he was confirmed in 1858 after a 34-day fight from radical abolitionists by a vote of 26 to 23. And he was the last living member of the more Jeffersonian-oriented Taney Court, and he was a firm believer in strict construction of the Constitution. So you have one very staunch Jeffersonian on the bench at this point, point. and Nathan Clifford, he's actually, if y'all ever want to read about him, he's actually a very interesting uh, person to look at, and he became very, very suspicious of federal authority, especially after the legal tender laws and everything else that they passed during the war. So Nathan Clifford, somebody definitely you should look into more. Thirdly, you got Salmon P. Chase. He was a very hyper-partisan member of the Republican Party and also a Lincoln appointee. And then you have Noah Haynes Swain. He was also a pretty hyper-partisan Republican Party member and Lincoln appointee. And then David Davis, who was a liberal Republican who actually opposed the radicals, but he was also a Lincoln appointee. So even though he was appointed by Lincoln, he was actually, he, he was kind of getting scared by what the radicals were doing to transform the country. And he opposed the radical agenda, uh, or the radical Republican agenda. And then the sixth person on the bench at this point was William Strong, also a member of the Republican Party. He was appointed by Hiram Ulysses Grant. So if y'all didn't know, Ulysses S. Grant's name was not actually Ulysses S. Grant. It was Hiram Ulysses Grant. He only gets to be known as Ulysses S. Grant because somebody at West Point made a mistake in transcribing his name for his application and then Joseph P. Bradley, Republican Party member, also appointed by Hiram Ulysses Grant. Ward Hunt, Republican Party, also appointed by Hiram Ulysses Grant. And Stephen J. Field. Now, Field is interesting because he was a member of the Democratic Party, but he was a Westerner and a Lincoln appointee. And his politics really kind of coincided more with the Republican Party and not the Democratic Party. So, given the makeup of the court and the political situation of the day and the dominance of the radical Republicans in both branches, or excuse me, the two other branches of the federal government, it seems as if they would have had every reason to make as broad of an interpretation of the 14th Amendment as they possibly could, since the Republican Party was in near total ascendancy at this point, and that was either by crook or by hook, you know, you be the judge— But in 1867, Thaddeus Stevens had even gone as far as to say this when debating the fate of the states of the former Confederacy, quote, According to my judgment, they ought never to be recognized as capable of acting in the Union or being counted as valid states until the Constitution shall have been so amended as to secure perpetual ascendancy to the party of the Union, i.e. the Republican Party. If they should grant the right of suffrage to persons of color, I think there would always be Union white men enough in the South, aided by the blacks, to divide the representation and thus continue the Republican ascendancy, end quote. So clearly, the major motivation for the radical nationalist at this point was overwhelming power in the central authority or the general government. And yet, when the 14th Amendment first went on trial in the Slaughterhouse cases, the results would not bear that out, and they are quite telling. So now to the opinion itself. And Justice Samuel F. Miller is the one who authored the opinion of the court. And it says, It may therefore be considered as established that the authority of the legislature of Louisiana to pass the present statute is ample unless some restraint in the exercise of that power be found in the Constitution of that state or in the amendments to the Constitution of the United States adopted since the date of the decisions we have already cited. And so what Miller is saying here is, look, unless Louisiana's state constitution bars them from doing this, this case doesn't really have any merit unless it can be found in the Civil War Amendments, so-called Civil War Amendments. That would be the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But he goes on to say, if any such restraint is supposed to exist in the constitution of the state, talking about the state of Louisiana, the Supreme Court of Louisiana haven't necessarily passed on that question. It would not be open to review in this court. So there he's saying, look, if the Louisiana Supreme Court said there was no violation of the state constitution, we can't review it. It's not open to us to overturn that. The plaintiffs in error, except in this issue, allege that the statute is a violation of the Constitution of the United States in these several particulars. So the appellants are going to be saying, look... It doesn't violate the Louisiana Constitution, it violates the federal Constitution, and here's why. And they list four reasons. Number one, that it creates an involuntary servitude forbidden by the 13th Article of Amendment. Number two, that it abridges the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Third, that it denies to the plaintiffs the equal protection of the laws. And fourth, that it deprives them of their property without due process of law, contrary to the provisions of the first section of the 14th Article of Amendment. This court is thus called upon for the first time to give construction to these articles. And so this is a big case. The Slaughterhouse case is a big, big case in American case law history because it is in fact the first time that the 14th amendment went on trial, also the 13th amendment, but more so we're gonna focus on the 14th. This is the first court case that involved the 14th amendment and would therefore really kind of set a precedent to say how far did the amendment go? And he's going to be drawing, or the majority in this case, is going to be drawing on some of the debates around the amendment. They're going to be drawing on the history of the times. They're going to be drawing on the circumstances of ratification, so on and so forth. So this is a big, big case. And Miller goes on to say, and this is an abridged version of the opinion. If y'all want to read the full one, it's very lengthy, but y'all can find it at justia.com, I believe is how that's pronounced. I'll include a link to it in the show notes page for this episode But he goes on to say, "...no questions so far-reaching and pervading in their consequences, so profoundly interesting to the people of this country, and so important in their bearing upon the relations of the United States, of the several states to each other, and to the citizens of the states and of the United States, have been before this court during the official life of any of its present members." But within the last eight years, three other articles of amendment of vast importance have been added by the voice of the people to that now venerable instrument. Here he's talking about the, again, so-called Civil War amendments. The most cursory glance at these articles discloses a unity of purpose when taken in connection with the history of the times, which cannot fail to have an important bearing on any question of doubt concerning their true meaning. And he's going to spell this out. It all has to do with securing the rights of the recently freed slaves, and it really goes to the fact that this is all intended to create equality of legislation based on color. So you couldn't have one law that applied to white people and one law that only applied to black people. You couldn't do that. And he's going to spell that out here. The institution of African slavery, as it existed in about half the states of this union, and the contest pervading the public mind for many years between those who desired its curtailment and ultimate extinction... And those who desired additional safeguards for its security and perpetuation culminated in the effort, on the part of most of the states in which slavery existed, to separate from the federal government and to resist its authority. This constituted the War of the Rebellion, and whatever auxiliary causes may have contributed to bring about this war, undoubtedly the overshadowing and efficient cause was African slavery. And here, I I don't agree with his take on what caused the war. Obviously, it was more for the right of self-determination and secession, not the practice of keeping slaves. That's not really what caused the war. We can say that maybe what caused secession, but the cause of the war was different from that. The cause of the war was did or did not the states have a right to leave. But he goes on, in that struggle, slavery, as a legalized social relation, perished. It perished as a necessity of the bitterness and force of the conflict, when the armies of freedom found themselves upon the soil of slavery, they could do nothing less than free the poor victims whose enforced servitude was the foundation of the quarrel and in the process subjugate the entire country to the whims of, a, of an overbearing central authority. But anyway, I digress. The proclamation of President Lincoln expressed an accomplished fact as to a large portion of the insurrectionary districts when he declared slavery abolished in them all. "...but the war being over, those who had succeeded in reestablishing the authority of the federal government were not content to permit this great act of emancipation to rest on the actual results of the contest or the proclamation of the executive, both of which might have been questioned in after times, and they determined to place this main and most valuable result in the Constitution of the Restored Union as one of its fundamental articles, hence the 13th Article of Amendment of that instrument." Okay, so what Miller is saying here is, look, yes, we had done this through executive fiat. We wanted to make sure it was codified and actually in the Constitution because otherwise we realized that this could have been challenged in court and we probably would have lost. That's what Miller is saying there, and that's very important to keep in mind. Its two short sections seem hardly to admit of construction, so vigorous is their expression and so appropriate to the purpose we have indicated, that one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime— whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, and two, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. To withdraw the mind from the contemplation of this grand yet simple declaration of the personal freedom of all the human race within the jurisdiction of this government, and with a microscopic search endeavor to find in it a reference to servitudes which may have been attached to property in certain localities requires an effort to say the least of it. That a personal servitude was meant is proved by the use of the word involuntary, which can only apply to human beings. The exception of servitude as a punishment for crime gives an idea of the class of servitude that is meant. The word servitude is of larger meaning than slavery, as the latter is popularly understood in this country, and the obvious purpose was to forbid all shades and conditions of African slavery. And it is all that we deem necessary to say on the application of that article to the statute of Louisiana now under consideration. So basically what he's saying there is like, look, are they keeping you in bondage? Are they really forcing you to labor or so on and so forth? And the answer to that was an obvious no. But he goes on to say, the process of restoring to their proper relations with the federal government and with the other states, those which had sided with the rebellion, undertaken under the proclamation of President Johnson in 1865 and before the assembling of Congress, developed the fact that notwithstanding the formal recognition by those states of the abolition of slavery... The condition of the slave race would, without further protection of the federal government, be almost as bad as it was before. So again, all, the, all of this is motivated by saying we need to secure the rights of the freemen because they're going to be in a vulnerable condition. Among the first acts of legislation adopted by several of the states in the legislative bodies which claimed to be in their normal relations with the federal government, were laws which imposed upon the colored race, onerous disabilities, and burdens, and curtailed their rights in the pursuit of life, liberty, and property, to such an extent that their freedom was of little value, while they had lost the protection which they had received from their former owners for motives both of interest and humanity. They were in some states forbidden to appear in the towns in any other character than menial servants. They were required to reside on and cultivate the soil without the right to purchase or own it. So permanent renter class, doesn't that sound familiar in 2022? They were excluded from many occupations of gain and were not permitted to give testimony in the courts in any case where a white man was a party. It was said that their lives were at the mercy of bad men, either because the laws for their protection were insufficient or were not enforced. And now, interestingly enough, at this point, you have a lot of carpetbag regimes that have been installed in the South and the South is basically being operated as a military district or a, a series of military districts. So it's kind of, Interesting to me, because you have all these Northerners coming down to reap the spoils of war, and this is the type of legislation that we start seeing out of that when the South wasn't really in control of its own internal affairs. And from here, Miller is really going to reiterate what the purpose of these new amendments was going to be. He says, These circumstances, whatever falsehood or misconception may have been mingled with their presentation, forced upon the statesmen who had conducted the federal government in safety through the crisis of the rebellion— and who supposed that by the 13th Article of Amendment they had secured the result of their labors, the conviction that something more was necessary in the way of constitutional protection to the unfortunate race who had suffered so much. They accordingly passed through Congress the proposition for the 14th Amendment, and they declined to treat as restored to their full participation in the government of the Union the states which had been in insurrection until they ratified that article by a formal vote of their legislative bodies, Okay, and this is where you get into the 14th Amendment was never legally ratified. One, two of the states that never left the union rescinded their articles of ratification. And then two, the general government cannot coerce a state to ratify an amendment as a condition of reentry. And according to Lincoln, the southern states never actually left. So what is it? Did, were they actually out or what was going on? But see, the Congress had booted out the states, even the ones that had already been submitted back into the union, The Congress had booted out the states and now they're telling them, nope, you want to come back in, you got to ratify this amendment. And they could not do that. The general government does not have that power. That is extremely coercive. But he goes on to say, before we proceed to examine more critically the provisions of this amendment on which the plaintiffs in error rely, let us complete and dismiss the history of the recent amendments as that history relates to the general purpose which pervades them all. So he's going to say all three of these amendments have a common purpose. A few years' experience satisfied the thoughtful men who had been the authors of the other two amendments that notwithstanding the restraints of those articles on the states and the laws passed under the additional powers granted to Congress, these were inadequate for the protection of life, liberty, and property without which freedom to the slave was no boon. They were in all those states denied the right of suffrage. The laws were administered by the white man alone. It was urged that a race of men distinctively marked, as was the Negro living in the midst of another and dominant race, could never be fully secured in their person and their property without the right of suffrage. And hence the 15th Amendment, which declares that the right of a citizen of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The Negro having, by the 14th Amendment, been declared to be a citizen of the United States is thus made a voter in every state of the Union. And that wouldn't exactly be the case. You, you still had a lot of state control of the election process and states could actually disfranchise people. They just couldn't do it on the basis of color. So if they wanted to have a poll tax or a literacy test, hey, that is perfectly A-OK as long as you apply it equally to all races. We repeat then, in the light of this recapitulation of events, almost too recent to be called history, but which are familiar to us all, and on the most casual examination of the language of these amendments, no one can fail to be impressed with the one pervading purpose found in them all, lying at the foundation of each, and without which none of them would have been even suggested, We mean the freedom of the slave race, the security and firm establishment of that freedom, and the protection of the newly made freeman and citizen from the oppressions of those who had formerly exercised unlimited dominion over him. And so there it is. Miller is saying, these are why these amendments were passed. It was all about securing the newfound freedom of the former slaves or of the black people. It is quite clear then that there is a citizenship of the United States, and this is going to be an interesting point, It is quite clear then that there is a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state, which are distinct from each other and which depend upon different characteristics or circumstances in the individual. So Miller is going to acknowledge, look, there is a difference between federal citizenship and state citizenship. There are some things that the general government is completely not allowed to do that would play into the Bill of Rights, but there are some things that is totally up to the state and the state is only bound by its own constitution. And he goes on, We think this distinction and its explicit recognition in this amendment of great weight in this argument because the next paragraph of this same section, which is the one mainly relied on by the plaintiffs in error, speaks only of privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States and does not speak of those of citizens of the several states. The argument, however, in favor of the plaintiffs rests wholly on the assumption that the citizenship is the same and the privileges and immunities guaranteed by the clauses are the same. The language is, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States. It is a little remarkable if this clause was intended as a protection to the citizen of a state against the legislative power of his own state, that the word citizen of the state should be left out when it is so carefully used, and used in contradistinction to citizens of the United States in the very sentence which precedes it. So here he's saying, look, this would be an absurdity. If they actually meant this to apply directly to the states, they would have included language to that effect. It is too clear for argument that the change in phraseology was adopted understandingly and, without a per- or, excuse me, and with a purpose. Of the privileges and immunities of the citizen of the United States, and of the privileges and immunities of the citizen of the state, and what they respectively are, we will presently consider... But we wish to state here that it is only the former which are placed by this clause under the protection of the federal constitution and that the latter, whatever they may be, are not intended to have any additional protection by this paragraph of the amendment. So what they're saying there is, aside from the explicit limitations that we have put on state power with this amendment, there is no room for additional implied powers. We are not granting an all-expansive grant of power to the general government subject to its own discretion. And he goes on, if then there is a difference between the privileges and immunities belonging to a citizen of the United States as such and those belonging to the citizen of the state as such, the latter must rest for their security and protection where they have heretofore rested, which would be with the states, Baron v. Baltimore, for they are not embraced by this paragraph of the amendment. And so there are a lot of libertarians, actually not a lot. There's one guy in particular who keeps doubling down on the privileges and immunities section of the 14th Amendment because that's what Clarence Thomas used in the McDonald v. Chicago decision to incorporate the Second Amendment against the states. And he says, well, look, this was nothing short of legal brilliance because Clarence Thomas decided this and he invented this and blah, 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 and it all rests on privileges and immunities. Now, the obvious question should be what was meant by the term privileges and immunities. And the Slaughterhouse case actually addresses that, as does Raoul Berger's book, Government by Judiciary. But Miller goes on here. He says the first occurrence of the words privileges and immunities in our constitutional history is to be found in the fourth of the Articles of the Old Confederation. So fourth article of the Articles of Confederation is is what that means. It declares that the better to secure and perpetuate mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states in this union, the free inhabitants of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice excepted, shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states, and the people of each state shall have free ingress and regress to and from any other state, and shall enjoy therein all the privileges of trade and commerce, subject to the same duties, impositions, and restrictions as the inhabitants thereof respectively. So what that means is if you're going to have a law, you cannot just say, okay, our native citizens here of the state of Virginia are entitled to all these privileges, but hey, you New York Yankee who just moved down here, we're going to tax the dog crap out of you so our native citizens can flourish at your expense. That's what that means. And you would also have freedom of movement between the states. So one state couldn't just up and say, you know what? we feel like being really tyrannical and we're going to prevent you from leaving. So if you're in, let's say, Massachusetts and you think that we're getting pretty bad, well, that's just too bad. We're not going to allow you to flee to New Jersey. That's what that means. That That's what privileges and immunities meant. That if the states were going to have a law, it had to operate the same on all of its free inhabitants. Now, they, at that point, and it was morally wrong then, it's morally wrong now, obligatory statement out of the way, But they obviously excluded slaves from this. It was meant to apply to the freemen. And the whole purpose of the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments was to reconcile that with the now freed former slaves. So with these amendments, you have equal protection under the law in the sense that you cannot just pass blatantly discriminatory legislation against a certain race or class of people. To the extent possible, it must operate equally on everyone. You can still do really horrendous things like gun control or like disfranchisement, but you cannot do it on the basis of color. So if you're going to disarm the black people of your state, you also have to disarm the white people. That was the original intent of this, to be colorblind legislation and say, we fought really hard to have all this. Now, granted, whether or not you think that's what the North was actually fighting for, that's that's another conversation for a different day. But these are the things that we did. These, this is the legislation we passed. Now we're codifying it by putting it actually into the Constitution and saying explicitly that the states are giving up the ability to do this. And Miller goes on to talk about how strong of an influence the articles still had on the new Constitution of the United States. And this was something that was acknowledged back in the founding period as well. There were some things that were lifted almost verbatim from the articles. There were some things that were a direct reference to the articles but Miller says here in the Constitution of the United States which superseded the Articles of Confederation the corresponding provision is found in section 2 of the 4th article in the following words The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states There can be but little question that the purpose of both these provisions is the same and that the privileges and immunities intended are the same in each and from here he actually goes on to pose the theoretical or rhetorical rather question of what is meant by privileges and immunities. And in reference to that, he cites Corfield v. Coriel as a case that defines privileges and immunities more in depth. And that's a really good case to look into as well. I'm not going to get off on that tangent today. But he goes on here to say, the constitutional provision there alluded to did not create those rights which it called privileges and immunities of citizens of the states. It threw around them in that clause no security for the citizen of the state in which they were claimed or exercised nor did it profess to control the power of the state governments over the rights of its own citizens. So again, Bill of Rights still does not apply to the states. Its sole purpose was to declare to the several states that whatever those rights, as you grant or establish them to your own citizens, or as you limit or qualify or impose restrictions on their exercise, the same, neither more nor less, shall be the measure of the rights of citizens of other states within your jurisdiction, That's what I was saying earlier. You cannot have Virginia just passing discriminatory legislation against Yankees coming in from the North saying, you can't do this, but our native-born citizens can. States can't do that. If you're going to have a set of rights for your citizens, then anybody who comes in your jurisdiction is going to receive those same grants of rights. So that is what is meant by that. It would be the vainest show of learning to attempt to prove by citations of authority that up to the adoption of the recent amendments, no claim or pretense was set up that those rights depended on the federal government for their existence or protection beyond the very few expressed limitations which the federal constitution imposed upon the states. Such, for instance, as the prohibition against ex post facto laws, bills of attainder, and laws impairing the obligation of contracts. And this is a point that I brought up. The only explicit limitations on state power are really found in Article 1, Section 10. That's what Miller's talking about here. But with the exception of these and a few other restrictions, the entire domain of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the states, as above defined, lay within the constitutional and legislative power of the states, plural, and without that of the federal government. Was it the purpose of the 14th Amendment by the simple declaration that no state should make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States? To transfer the security and protection of all the civil rights which we have mentioned from the states to the federal government? And where it is declared that Congress shall have the power to enforce that article, was it intended to bring within the power of Congress the entire domain of civil rights heretofore belonging exclusively to the states? All this and more must follow if the proposition of the plaintiffs in error be sound." For not only are these rights subject to the control of Congress whenever, in its discretion, any of them are supposed to be abridged by state legislation, but that body may also pass laws in advance, limiting and restricting the exercise of legislative power by the states in their most ordinary and usual functions so that they could touch you in every capacity of your life. As in its judgment, it may think proper on all such subjects." And still further, such a construction followed by the reversal of the judgments of the Supreme Court of Louisiana in these cases would constitute this court a perpetual censor upon all legislation of the states on the civil rights of their own citizens with authority to nullify such as it did not approve as consistent with those rights as they existed at the time of the adoption of this amendment. And that right there is exactly what I said in our previous episode on the Bill of Rights. The problem, the major problem, at least, with incorporation is that it does not happen in a vacuum. It comes necessarily paired with the power of interpretation and the usurped and undelegated authority of judicial review of state law. And that's exactly what Miller is saying. If we do this, if we expand it to this extent, we're going to make this court a perpetual censor of state law. And he's acknowledging that as a very bad thing. But he continues, the argument we admit is not always the most conclusive, which is drawn from the consequences urged against the adoption of a particular construction of an instrument. But when, as in the case before us, these consequences are so serious, so far reaching and pervading, so great a departure from the structure and spirit of our institutions, when the effect is to fetter and degrade the state governments by subjecting them to the control of Congress, and the exercise of powers heretofore universally conceded to them, of the most ordinary and fundamental character, when in fact it radically changes the whole theory of the relations of the state and federal governments to each other and to both these governments to the people, the argument has a force that is irresistible in the absence of language which expresses such a purpose too clearly to admit of doubt. And we are convinced that no such results were intended by the Congress which proposed these amendments, nor by the legislatures of the states which ratified them. Having shown that the privileges and immunities relied on in the argument are those which belong to citizens of the states as such, and that they are left to the state governments for security and protection, and not by this article placed under the special care of the federal government, we may hold ourselves excused from defining the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, which no state can abridge, until some case involving those privileges may make it necessary to do so. The argument has not been much pressed in these cases that the defendant's charter deprives the plaintiffs of their property without due process of law, or that it denies to them the equal protection of the law. The first of these paragraphs has been in the Constitution since the adoption of the Fifth Amendment as a restraint upon the federal power. It is also to be found in some form of expression in the constitutions of nearly all the states as a restraint upon the power of the states. This law then has practically been the same as it now is during the existence of the government, except so far as the present amendment may place the restraining power over the states in this matter in the hands of the federal government. We are not without judicial interpretation, therefore, both state and national, of the meaning of this clause. And it is sufficient to say that under no construction of that provision that we have ever seen, or any that we deem admissible, Can the restraint imposed by the state of Louisiana upon the exercise of their trade by the butchers of New Orleans be held to be a deprivation of property within the meaning of that provision? Nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. In the light of the history of these amendments and the pervading purpose of them, which we have already discussed, it is not difficult to give a meaning to this clause." The existence of laws in the states where the newly emancipated Negroes resided, which discriminated with gross injustice and hardship against them as a class, was the evil to be remedied by this clause, and by it such laws are forbidden. If, however, the states did not conform their laws to its requirements, then by the fifth section of the Article of Amendment, Congress was authorized to enforce it by suitable legislation. We doubt very much whether any action of a state not directed by way of discrimination against the Negroes as a class or on account of their race, will ever be held to come within the purview of this provision. It is so clearly a provision for that race and that emergency that a strong case would be necessary for its application to any other. The adoption of the first 11 amendments to the Constitution so soon after the original instrument was accepted shows a prevailing sense of danger at that time from the federal power, and it cannot be denied that such a jealousy continued to exist with many patriotic men until the breaking out of the late Civil War. It was then discovered that the true danger to the perpetuity of the Union was in the capacity of the state organizations to combine and concentrate all the powers of the state and of contiguous states for a determined resistance to the general government. Unquestionably, this has given great force to the argument and added largely to the number of those who believe in the necessity of a strong national government. But, however pervading this sentiment, and however it may have contributed to the adoption of the amendments we have been considering, We do not see in those amendments any purpose to destroy the main features of the general system. So he is openly saying there, we see no intent in this amendment, in the 14th Amendment, 13th, 15th, whatever. We see no intent in these amendments to destroy the states as states, to create a unitary nation state from the top down. He's saying that there was no intention to do that and the court cannot admit of that. Under the pressure of all the excited feeling growing out of the war, our statesmen have still believed that the existence of the state with powers for domestic and local government, including the regulation of civil rights, the rights of person, and of property, was essential to the perfect working of our complex form of government, though they have thought proper to impose additional limitations on the state and to confer additional power on that of the nation." The judgments of the Supreme Court of Louisiana in these cases are affirmed, and so they upheld the Louisiana legislation. But just keep this in mind. When somebody says, well, yeah, maybe once upon a time the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states, but then we got the 14th Amendment, go directly to the Slaughterhouse case opinion. Read what they said. This was five years after the amendment was ratified. Very short amount of time. All these folks were around when it was ratified, when it was going through the debate process. But you can also go back and look in the old records of the Congressional Globe. You can see what the drafters of the amendment themselves had to say about it. And then you can also reference, there's another case, and we're not going to cover this one, but there's another case that even went on a more narrow interpretation than did the Slaughterhouse cases. That would be USB Crookshank that literally said the Second Amendment does not apply to the states. So just keep that in mind when you start facing these libertarian nationalists, these conservative nationalists, whatever the nationalist stripe of the day is, when they start going off on their tangent about the Bill of Rights and how wonderful these rulings are and how it's great that the conservatives control the court now, just smack them down, smack them down because states' rights is the only approach. We need local self-control, local self-government. Thank you all again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, we are expecting Little Miss Jeffersonian to come kicking and screaming into the world later this year. So if y'all want to help us out with any of the expenses we expect with her, I have a link for a registry in the show notes page. Or if you would like, please consider becoming a contributing member so we can defray some of the diaper expenses. I call it helping me establish my diaper fund. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your go-backs today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in and I will talk to you all next time.